Welcome to the Music Teachers in International Schools podcast. I'm your host, Chris Kulmer, founder of Beginner Orchestra, a curated platform for inclusive orchestra pieces for your early stage learners. In this episode, I'm speaking with Steve Jackman. He's the head of curriculum music at Shrewsbury International School, Bangkok. And Steve was once described to me as the guy that everyone knows of, but no one's met. So today, I wanted to help more of the international school music education world get to know him, and hopefully many of us will get to meet him one day as well. Steve is highly experienced in developing whole school music programs and draws on a diverse range of approaches in doing so. I'm looking forward to learning more about what it means to be in a unique role like the one Steve holds. So let's welcome Steve to the show. Thanks for joining me. Thanks so much, Chris. How was the intro? Was that okay? Yeah, it was a very good intro. <laughs> good. Entertaining. Great. Um, Steve, let's start with your journey to international school music teaching. Can you take us from wherever you want that to begin to where you are today? Yeah, so I guess um, I trained as a professional, well, I trained to be a professional trumpet player, so cl proper classical background. Um, I went to the Royal Northern College of Music in Manchester, and I was all ready to go and do a uh, postgrad in performance at Royal Academy of Music in London. Um, but then I kind of just found a different pathway and ended up doing a fast track teacher training program um, in the UK called Teach First. It really interested me. Um, I was trying to look at things I could do to broaden my kind of musical experience. Uh, I wasn't necessarily planning on being a teacher forever, but I thought, oh, this is good because it had industry connections. EMI kind of drew, drew my eye and um, I got to work at EMI for a few weeks in, in an internship and found that EMI is actually just a bit boring. Uh, it's like another business. Yeah. One percent of what they do is really interesting, but ninety nine percent of it is like is paper shuffling. Mm. Um, so I learned a valuable lesson there that working for EMI was not where I wanted to go. And so I ended up um, teaching in schools in London. Um, great thing about being in London is there's so many orchestras and arts organizations so I was really able to take advantage of that and and get all these great orchestral musicians into schools doing kind of creative projects um, and I guess that that kind of um, bringing in traditional orchestral music but in a new kind of more creative way and by creative I mean instead of just performing someone else's music like creative for me involves creating something new as a musical artifact, music making in a creative way, I think. But yeah, so I was doing that in London for a while and then um, decided I needed change and found a job as um, director of music at a, a new British international school in Malaysia. Um, so that was really cool. I got to set up an entire department um, from early years to, to, to 18, really. So yeah, ages three to 18. And that was, a that was, I guess that was my first starting point of working with really young children. Uh, before that, I'd kind of just done projects across primary and secondary. Um, so yeah, two years there. And also um, that's where we kind of got Musical Futures, which was going really well in the UK on Australia, but there was a gap internationally. And that's where I started planning to bring Musical Futures into international schools in Asia, and that resulted in a conference in Malaysia, our first one, I think it was in like 2018, maybe. I don't remember exactly the year. It was great though. It was a while ago, and that's <laughs> where I met you, Chris. That's right. And yeah, because that was before I was even part of Fabicia, and when I moved to um, Shrewsbury, Bangkok, 
um, I kind of got to meet a lot of international teachers through the Fabicia network. Nice. And so how long have you been at Shrewsbury, Bangkok? Yeah, that's a good question. I, I kind of forget myself sometimes. I think this is my sixth year. Okay. Um, or no, yes, sixth year. Seventh. Seventh year. Seventh year. And for those who have been to Bangkok before, um, or if you haven't, there's a river that passes through Bangkok. It's a river, right? Yeah, it's yeah. a big one. And the school is right on the river. And uh, we were just having a look at Steve's music department and he's got a awesome view of the river right here. So it's a nice spot to work. Yeah, beautiful balcony, you know, river views, fireworks. <laughs> Perfect music department. Yeah. Very cool. So let's go with looking a bit at your role now then. So Malaysia, you got involved in sort of the whole school music program approach, starting, like you said, with three years old all the way through. And here you're head of curriculum music. What does that involve? What's that role involve? Give us a bit of a detail yeah. on that. So being head of curriculum music is, is kind of what it says. It's focused on the kind of classroom timetabled curriculum lessons that happen um, from early years all the way up to Key Stage 2, Key Stage 3, GCSE and A-level. Um, so we have quite good numbers at GCSE and two A-level programs. And so it's just making sure that the curriculums are really engaging and we're getting increasing numbers at GCSE and increasing numbers at A-level and getting good results and, and supporting students um, where they go after um, to university as well. So it's kind of really focusing on the academic program um, as opposed to the co-curricular or performance program. So at the school then you've got someone else focusing on those elements? Yeah, so the director of music oversees everything musically in the school, but their focus is more on the, what, the after school activities, the ensembles, the performance, the concerts. And that just means that, that they're able to focus on that and I can make sure that the academic stuff goes really well. Mm. This is a good, I guess, debate maybe, this word academic, academic music. Yeah. What does academic music mean to you? I have absolutely no idea. <laughs> Um, it's just a label. It's just a label. So for me, you could call it timetabled music. That's why I think the word curriculum music is slightly better because, and, or you could say academic music at, in senior school is what, is, is, the, is what you have to teach for the GCC and A-level. But going down from Key Stage 3 down where teachers have control of their curriculum, it's, it definitely doesn't have to be particularly academic. We don't have any tables, for example, in any of our music teaching classrooms for year nine downwards. Mm. It's, it's, it's very non-academic. Okay. Can you take us through then, uh, give us an idea of what the curriculum looks like. You can go as deep as you want, but go from yeah, early yeah. years? Yeah, right? let's start early, early years. years and all the way through. Give us a bit of an idea. Yeah, so um, our curriculum is British, because we're a British curriculum school. Um, so we start off in early years, which is age three, and there's EY1 and EY2, year one, year two. And the school's philosophy around... Um, the curriculum at EY is, is really strong and defining our curriculum. And it's, it's, it's all learning through play, play-based learning. So um, it's super unstructured. Um, you provide kind of stimuluses to students. For me, I think it's amazing um, because music is all about playing and exploring. So if uh, you're messing around the floor in the mud, essentially the music curriculum might be making a song about mud. Um, and what I think defines um, a really great music curriculum generally is all the way from the bottom up is that right at the beginning, the earliest, they're, they're making their own music and expressing themselves through music and creating and making sounds, their own sounds, rather than just kind of a strict kind of 
performance element. So yes, we learn songs, and yes, we you know we've got Christmas concerts coming up, and you know we'll trot the EY kids out to do their Christmas sing. But actually, that's not the curriculum. The curriculum is really driven by the the learners. It's it, they have the agency in what they learn. And so that's early years, um, year one, year two, um, year three. Uh, so I'm actually going to go to year two. Year two is when we really start to add in instruments. Year one is kind of rhythm skills and. Um, percussion instruments that are untuned. And then year two, we bring out the dreaded recorders. I say dreaded recorders because I think recorders are kind of, <laughs> what, what would you say? Like, it's a, it's a, marmite, it's a marmite thing or a, a Vegemite thing. Well, are they dreaded for you? Do you, like, do you get excited when the year two start recorders? I don't have to teach them. No, actually, <laughs> although I am actually teaching them today. Okay. Um, for me, it, it, it's all about where it fits in the curriculum. Yeah. Um, and also how well it's taught. Um, and if the person teaching recorders is really passionate about it, um, then that's great. And also, it's the start of our instrumental learning program um, as well. Um, and everybody gets a recorder. Everybody can take a recorder home. It, you know, you can wash a recorder. It's, it's really convenient. And they, and they can make nice sounds. Um, and our, our recorder program is, is very, like, specific in, in, in the sense that students make you know, they get little like ribbons on the end of their recorders as recorder they progress. That, yeah, like yeah. recorder karate. So it's a kind of adapted recorder karate. So it really kind of gets the students motivated because um, I don't know about other people in international schools, but but kids tend to like um, to, to test. Kids like tests. Yeah. Um, and I think whilst whilst I, I'm not a massive fan of tests, I think students are motivated by tests because they want to get re, they want to they want to get full marks. And if you can provide opportunities for kids to feel like they're doing really well musically, they might actually feel like musicians. Whereas sometimes I feel like if you've got a, too much of an open curriculum without assessment or like formative assessment points, kids don't really know if they're good or not. Mm. Like even the good ones doubt themselves because they're not getting full marks on that test. Whereas in maths, they're getting full marks on their test. And so they know they're great. They're number one in the class, they're number two in the class. I wonder sometimes whether the kids in the class even know they're good or how good they are. Mm. Unless, unless, I'm not saying we should rank kids. And I'm, that's, this is the problem. It's like, it's a yin yang thing in the sense that Maybe music is a space where we don't need to have rankings, but as long as we understand that there's a con to that, that some people will be less motivated. Gone off mm. on a tangent there. I love that tangent. I think it's such a valuable tangent to go on because this is something as music teachers we grapple with, this whole assessment idea, both summatively and formatively. Like, what do we do? Do we, how much do we do? What's its purpose? So I think you've addressed that really well. Um, Carry on. What happens after recorders in year two? Yeah, so year two is hopefully um, the students learn the value of practicing their instrument and taking it home and looking after their instrument as well. Because uh, in year three, we have a new orchestra program. So um, everybody, every child gets loaned either a violin, cello, tenor horn, saxophone or flute. Um, and they get that for a year. And one hour a week, they come together in their instrument group um, to have lessons, um, as a class and then kind of we have opportunities throughout the year for kind of whole orchestra performances so we're kind of growing our own orchestra like lots of schools do from scratch um, difference with our program is we've got specialist instrumental teachers leading those sections so whilst we have our normal classroom teachers music classroom teachers timetabled they're also supported by a specialist on each instrument 
Okay, so they, are they having one instrumental focused lesson and one something else, or is it all instrumental focused? Um, so we have three lessons per cycle. So two of those lessons in a two-week cycle is the orchestra, and then they have their one curriculum lesson, which kind of is a lot of singing and yeah. kind of making music. Because yeah. um, otherwise it's just a bit too performance focused for me, for my yeah. liking. Um, but also the kind of pedagogy of the um, orchestra program is very much creative. So they're working together to create their own kind of music as well as perform others. So yeah. if they can play three notes, they're making music and writing pieces of music that have three notes in them as a group. That's idea. cool. I feel like a lot of our listeners will be interested in this concept. Yeah, so the model is really, um, like I said, I was working with orchestras in the UK and orchestras usually have an education arm or in the UK they do. And then quite often um, you have uh, what they call an animateur come in and they're kind of the education person and they'll bring some musicians and what they'll do is that with the students, they'll co-create a piece of music. And the students will feel like they made it. The reality is that it's been carefully orchestrated <laughs> in advance with some areas of choice. So it's a, you know, they say creativity thrives on constraints. Mm. Well, they've created some really awesome constraints to make it feel like the students have created their own music. So it's that kind of creative project where at the end, you know, if we, you can wrap it around um, Halloween, you could wrap it around Christmas, you could wrap it around the planets, you could wrap it on planet Earth, like we do a planet Earth project where they, um, you know, they record their instruments into GarageBand, they use the sampler in GarageBand to create their own samples and soundtracks. So it's kind of that, that kind of creative project vibe so it's as well as that traditional learning to play the instrument it's all because it's a curriculum project and we're in a british school we're integrating composition listening and appraising in a kind of creative package so orchestra in three and four yeah uh then into five so then into five and six we kind of enter what you might call the modern band program um and it becomes starts to become a little bit more musical futures-esque um Although you could say the orchestra pro project is musical features in the sense it has um, a lot of student choice voice. And just to jump in there for listeners, episode one of this podcast series with Anna Gower really digs into the musical futures concept. So I just thought I'd throw that in there and we might talk about it more here with Steve because Steve's heavily involved with musical futures too. But um, if you're not quite sure, have a listen to that episode. Continue on. So they... Yeah, so it's about the informal learning. So going back to what I said about EY, EY is incredibly informal learning. You're creating those informal learning opportunities um, and moving up through the school, hopefully those informal learning opportunities are still present. So in year five, we kind of get stuck into some ukuleles and drumming and songwriting and it's your normal curriculum lessons, um, but we're kind of really focused on developing um, performance and composition skills specifically. Um, so that they, so that by the time they get to year six, hopefully they have some experience playing guitar, ukulele, keyboard. They can play chords. Um, they understand what a chord is. I find that that even in year seven and year eight, I teach kind of even grade eight pianists, um, and they they don't really know what a chord is because they read the music um, and the notation. But if I say, oh, can you just just play a chord, make up a chord, or let's learn chords, or, or I'll, I'll say, can you play me a G minor chord? And they won't necessarily know that. Or if I give them a, a chord sequence, they can't play that. So, hmm. so our curriculum is, 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 is quite contemporary in that sense. So there's not a lot of notation um, after the orchestral program. It becomes a lot more kind of contemporary. Um, so it focuses more on piano roll and chord symbols um, 
and Roman numerals. So like going up into year seven, we do a find your voice project, which is used 1564 as, you know, 1564 songs, the axis of awesome. So we dig into what those Roman numerals mean and, and, and how it works. And then they get to get, they get to start mashing up their own four chord songs. And then by the end of year seven, hopefully they're doing their own year seven band night. So that they're, they're either doing cover songs or writing their own songs. Um, and that carries on up through year eight and year nine. By the end of year nine, we hope that all kids are confident playing guitar, keyboard, singing, writing a song. Um, and we study some GCC set works in year nine as well. Mm. Um, we study release, which is like a, um, a fusion um, loop based um, track. And so that kind of leads ni nicely into GCC. Can I just quickly go back to year three, four? Do those orchestra students, let's call them that, do they go then into sort of more extracurricular if they want to, or how, just to see how that kind of carries yeah. through? So the year three and four orchestra program is kind of bringing the co-curricular, the performance element into the curriculum mm. um, really heavily. Um, and so year three is, and four is that intensive kind of learning to play the instrument, providing that opportunities, but then we shift it into the co-curricular after school program. So by the end of year four, they will already be in their kind of co-curricular ensembles yeah. if they're choosing to do that. If they're not interested in doing that or they want, they're more interested in singing or um, other chord-based instruments, um, we'll, we'll, they can focus on that. Yeah, and that's what happened in year five. Yeah, yeah. Cool, so then GCSE. Firstly, what are your numbers like at GCSE? GCSE, we have, we're looking about 30, 30-ish 30 um, in year 10, 30-ish in year 11. Yep. Um, and that's a real mix of your traditional musicians and the kind of non-traditional in the sense that it might previously been, been oh yeah, sorry, you, you, you don't really play a musical instrument, you can't do GCC music. Hmm. Um, so, or like, oh, you're into popular music, but you don't really perform or, or you make beats. No, sorry. So we've got a huge number of students who are who are not your traditional easy A-star guaranteed students. That you Just like GCC Geography, they don't have to have had 10 years of geography lessons outside the classroom. Yeah. <laughs> so GCC Geography, GCC Music is the same. So we don't have any bar barriers for that. And, and let's be honest, if a kid really wants to learn to play a grade five piece in two years on an instrument, they can do that. So the performance element isn't that hard. And the composition, we have loads of composition going on in our Key Stage 3 curriculum. So by the time they get to GCC, they're already kind of have got that composition vibe. So that's why our numbers are, are, are getting bigger is we, 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 we don't restrict. Yeah, right? just throw the barriers And off. we make it really clear as well that it, that it is open to all, that it's not for the privileged few that have, have learned instrument. Although now I'm hoping when those year fours make it up to GCC, we'll have far too many students. Yeah. But it doesn't happen like that because sometimes your top musicians don't choose GCC or A-level music. That's because they're already doing loads of it outside in the classroom whereas they can't do economics outside the classroom, thankfully, mm. um, or business studies. So they choose those subjects instead because right. they think they look good. But yeah, so our most, sometimes our most talented musicians just don't choose the subject, and yeah. that, that's fine. Do you tend to fight that battle, or do you sort of just, yeah, okay? Yeah, fight that battle, but I've also, you know, if a music student's like, yeah, but I already sing in two choirs, and I'm in the symphony orchestra, and, 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 I'm like, well, yeah, fair enough. Yeah. You don't need A-level music to to study at a conservatoire either. So it's like, there's only so much you can say. It's, it's all about the performance skills there. So. Yeah. 
So let's talk A-levels then. What's the, let's go numbers again and what, what does it look like? So A-level numbers are very small uh, for A-level music, like maybe one or two a year. Yeah. Um, we're hoping to grow that. Um, but our A-level music tech numbers are much bigger. We started A-level music tech a couple of years ago, so we have about eight or nine in each year group. Um, we don't have any fancy A-level music technology facilities yet, so I'm hoping once we get the facilities, um, we'll actually start to grow those numbers even more. Because at the moment, we're kind of recording in old, derelict classrooms. So. <laughs> Which is possibly like the real world. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we haven't got any fancy facilities, that's for sure. It's kind of garage style. Yeah, it's garage style. Is there anything else that you wanted to outline in terms of the curriculum that we might have missed? No, I think just um, going back to your question about academic mm. music, our curriculum program is really closely connected with the performance program. And it's just overlapping because it's it's they both benefit benefit each other so much. So um, even if you're a great pianist or violinist, chances are your composition skills suck um, unless you've happened to have composition lessons. So our curriculum obviously focuses on composition because that's an area that all students can excel in. Yeah. And being able to make your own music is such a powerful way to express yourself. Um, I really wish that I'd had more opportunities when I was growing up to actually learn how to make my, mu my, make my own music. We're gonna to touch on that next, but before we do, I just thought I'd mention to the listeners um, Steve's been working with educators from around the world in helping design curriculum. And so if anyone's interested in chatting more about, especially about like British style curriculum schools, but outside of that as well, we'll put show notes, um, we'll put your email rather in the show notes or any contacts for, for Steve there. So you can get in touch with him if you want to reach out and ask some questions and um, maybe do some work or have Steve do some work with you. Music technology at A-level, I love that you went there because that's something that seems to be growing I guess, across the board, around the world even. You seem to have quite a interest in music technology. And like you said, you wish you had more chance to maybe do some more music making. Yeah, in your composition, time. yeah. Is yeah. that in terms of music technology, music making, or just generally? It's interesting. So when I did A-levels, I didn't actually have to do composition at all. So I, the, the last time I actually wrote a composition, um, apart from when I started teaching again, was at GCSE and I did, I did both A-level music and A-level music technology and neither required me to do any compositions. At A-level um, it was harmonizing Bach chorales and a music tech was sequencing as in um, here's the score to um, Jump by Van Halen and you've got to input that into what was the digital audio workstation of 1999. What was that? I think. <laughs> Do you remember the name? What was that? Um, yeah. Audacity? I don't know. What no, no, that? no. Because it, no, it was MIDI, so there was no yeah, audio. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, so it was, it, I think it was, what's it called? Q, I think it would have been a Cubase. That's what I was thinking. It, it would have been Cubase, I think. So, yeah, so, the, so music technology there was sequencing. But I was really lucky to do music technology A level. And so, as part of the course, I got to do multi track recording. We were recording at that time onto ADAT. So it was the pre it was pre-digital audio workstation kind of that that most of our students now have to learn about. Um, so music technology teaches you all about the different areas of recording. The most confusing is the pre-digital audio workstation but digital era, where you've got all these digital devices that connect and talk to each other, but there's no it's not like Logic or, or GarageBand. It, it's pre that. So it's, yeah. a, it's a very cool era of confusion and I want to say hacking things together. Yeah, so, right. yeah. 
It's, yeah, it's interesting. It's, it's almost post-digital and it's like craziness. Yeah, right. So what does music technology kind of look like today then in your classroom and maybe for you generally as an educator, what should it look like? Yeah, now that comes, yeah, so that comes back to, well, what is music technology? Yeah. Um, and for me, um, music technology is any object or, or, or person or thing, um, living or not living, that, that you use to make music. So... Um, a piano is a piece of music technology. A Stradivarius violin is a pretty awesome piece of music technology. Equally, a vacuum cleaner is a piece of music technology if you're using it to make music. Um, so therefore, uh, an iPad, an iPhone, a digital audio workstation is a piece of music technology, and it's also a musical instrument. So a vacuum cleaner, again, is a musical instrument if you're, if you're instrumentalizing it to, 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 to making music. So I see a digital audio workstation as a musical instrument, but even more specifically, whatever software package you're using is your musical instrument. So if the digital, a digital audio workstation, I guess, is a family of musical instruments, within that family, there are lots and lots of different varieties. And if you make music using Sibelius, which I would also call a digital audio workstation, um, it's different music to if you're going to use, create music using Fruity Loops, which again is different to Ableton and different to Logic. I'm seeing the, the traditional classroom wall with like strings, woodwind, brass, percussion, DAW. Now. I, I think, <laughs> I, yeah, yeah. And then, and, and I, DAW is a genre specific as well. So. There you go, yeah. But underneath that, they're all kind of based on MIDI and, and, and MIDI's been around since 1982, 1983. Um, so a lot longer than us. Mm. Um, so it's pretty, it, it's pretty standard and that's the basis of all digital audio workstations. And so understanding MIDI and um, how that controls audio is, is a fundamental. Um, we start music technology off in about year four, I think, kind of getting kids to, like I said, in the orchestra, getting kids to record their sounds using GarageBand and kind of start to get creative, chopping things up in a kind of decoupage kind Ooh. of way. So we're talking, I think you mentioned this before, sampling, using the sampler in GarageBand yeah. and then chop. Yeah. And, and introducing sampling at a really young age so they just don't think it's anything new because it's not new, it's pretty old. It's just that it's so accessible on the iPad. Yeah. That's the other thing, whereas sampling maybe previously must could have been really quite difficult. You had to record and then import yeah. and then edit and then now it's just like press a button. Yeah. Do a little bit of cutting or whatever. Yeah. So you're starting them at year four, doing that kind of thing. What are some of the, what are some of the other activities that you kind of can think about that are... DAW based. Yeah, so the, we embed the DAW into, it's like you said with the instruments on the wall, the DAW on the wall, um, using GarageBand or Soundtrap or BandLab to record or to sequence. So if we're doing, uh, like I said, we're doing Find Your Voice in Year 7, which is a musical features kind of 1564 a cappella vocal mashup thing, as well as performing live, we might get them to multi-track that um, into GarageBand, um, might get them to sequence that and create an arrangement. Um, year eight, we do Pachelbel's Canon, get the sheet music out, notate, again, use Roman numerals to go through the ground bass, work out what notes can be, can be used to create all these different melodies, but then they'll put it all into GarageBand once they've composed it on paper and create an arrangement um, and perform it as a class as well. So, and some students work will work really well performing as a class and some work will work better in a DAW, just like some music isn't designed to be performed, it's designed 
to be played electronically. So it just depends. And then so carry on working up. And then by the end of year nine, we're kind of giving students totally open-ended projects as to whether they want to do a podcast project or they want to make a music video or, or um, create a piece of electronic dance music or write for a string quartet. It, it depends on what they want to do. What are your go-to pieces of software that you tend to use? GarageBand? So use GarageBand um, because our school, most kids ha have to have an iPad um, um, and increasingly lots of kids have that. And then, but we also use Soundtrap. Soundtrap's really great for collaboration um, online. Um, so we do a songwriting project with Soundtrap um, and that's really good because when we're in class, they've all got Soundtrap. So in their, they're working in their groups, but on one machine. So we've got one device per group because they can actually work face-to-face -face without those laptops. And they can come up with their ideas and record them in the room, but inevitably everything's really noisy. But then they can go home to their, to their bedroom and record their vocals or whatever it is in their bedroom uh, for homework. Um, and, and because it's cloud-based, that, that works really well. They can just collaborate. Um, and it's got kind of video and audio networking facilities. So it, it works really well for that. Um, but we also use BandLab. It's really BandLab's really good for sampling. It's got a really good kind of built-in sampler. Yeah. Um, so it depends on the project. I think it's really important to introduce students to a range of digital audio workstations, just like we introduce students to a range of musical instruments. Um, yeah, and th that's kind of connected with with my research as well. So do you want to talk a bit about your dissertation then? What was your research, uh, and what did you kind of find? Yeah, so I, I studied a master's in digital education at the University of Edinburgh. It wasn't uh, specifically a music course, um, but I ended up focusing my research. Um, it was based around kind of post-humanism and the way, and post-humanism is kind of like, well, within music, I see it as the way we, with other objects, make music. So there's no separation between myself and my trumpet. I'm a trumpeter. Or a violinist is a combination of violin plus human. Um, and I think most musicians understand that, that you're kind of at one with your instrument when you're making music. And we don't really have that kind of view with technology, digital technology yet. Um, so um, I looked in specifically at digital audio workstations and how people made music. Um, I wasn't, it was during COVID, so I wasn't able to do research in person and I wasn't able to work with children at all. So I had to, so my only option was to interview music teachers. So I ended up interviewing international music teachers. Um, thank you to those that um, I interviewed and talking about how they made music um, with their students using technology and what the influences are of digital technology. I think everybody would, everybody would kind of understand that without the electric guitar, there wouldn't be rock music. Um, so technology has a massive influence on the way, on, on the way what yeah. music is and, and the outcome. Just like the invention of the piano had a massive impact on Beethoven's output. Mm. Um, so the same is true with digital technologies. So looking at how digital technologies have a role, and I mean have agency. So that's where the post-human element comes in, is that the technology isn't this neutral part of the process. It has a massive impact on the music that you make. So if you make music in Sibelius, it's going to be very different to the way you make music in um, GarageBand. So first of all, I kind of separated out between note-based software and block-based software. So block-based being, you know, when you've got the, like the arrange window. Mm. So you've got the notation-based and block-based and kind of looked into the differences of that and how the, 
the pros and cons, as it were, of using that software to make music. And then also looking at specific kind of teachers and their students' workflows. So, for example, one teacher I chatted with um, had a really interesting workflow where they'd start their students off. They use the term jamming in Soundtrap. So they jam in Soundtrap and kind of workshop their ideas in Soundtrap. Then they would take that into, um, I think it was Flat.io, because Soundtrap and Flat.io talk to each other, okay. to, to develop motifs. So they would focus on motivic development within Flat.io using notation. And then they would put it back into Soundtrap at the end to mix and add in all the kind of automation yeah, and right. panning. And, and so it was a three-step process of workshopping and I think of classroom workshopping. How, how do you do classroom workshopping in a digital space? Well, you certainly can't do it in Sibelius. It's just, it's not designed for that. It's, mm. it's rigid. And its rigidity is a good thing in certain circumstances, which is where the motivic development comes on later on is you've got those rigid, rigid kind of ideas. Right, we're going to sort out our musical ideas and get them nailed down. And then we're going to create our piece and arrange it in the back in the, in the digital audio workstation back in in that soundtrack. So it's kind of looking at that. I bet the conversations are fascinating. Just yeah, it's really exploring those things like multiple uses of DAWs and them talking to each other like yeah. I think that there are, there are two there are two things. One is it's really good for a student to learn to play one digital musical instrument really well, but then it's really great to be a multiple digital musical instrumentalist. <laughs> so while we think I would love to be a multi-instrumentalist to be able to play lots of different instruments, I learned to play one really well first. Yeah. And, then I, and then hopefully I could transfer onto more instruments. It's the same digitally. I think that because the principles are kind of similar, yeah. but once you go deep into one digital instrument, then you can start to broaden out. So I, I, I find it easy to work in, across Soundtrap, GarageBand, BandLab, um, even Ableton, which is, again, a different looking interface altogether. Yeah, well, I'm just thinking personally for me, like I'm proficient in Logic Pro, GarageBand, probably in some others, maybe Soundtrap and BandLab a bit as well. But when I went and picked up Ableton, I was like, well, it was the learning curve. Like it was a proper learning curve because the interface was so different. It was almost like picking up another instrument. Yeah. So, so I totally hear that. Yeah, it's really cool. I, I think I think that, that, that that's what I would encourage people to do and because digital audio workstations like the different softwares are so genre specific I think it's really good to encourage students to find their genre yeah. and, and find the niche that they really like making music in yeah so much there I'm sure there'll be some people interested in this concept so again reach out to Steve if you want to know more Steve I want to ask you the question that I ask everyone it's a bit of a pivot from what we've been talking about but it links very specifically to this podcast um, and I'm sure our listeners are probably expecting this question, but you've had a fair bit of experience in international schools. You mentioned Malaysia, now uh, Thailand as well. So in your understanding and in your experience, what would you say makes a good international school music teacher? Yeah, I, 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 knew, I knew this question was coming. Um, <laughs> and you, you give me a nice long intro to just kind of get my thoughts going. Uh, and so... I'm going to keep it short and just say context is everything. So I think I've now been at this school for seven years and I'm still trying to nail down what works best in this contextual environment. Um, because what worked really well in, in my school in London or my school in Malaysia just won't work here. I need to find out what works best for my students um, 
and what, what they want to do. So it kind of all comes back to informal learning in the sense that you're focusing on learner agency and, and, and facilitating them and where they want to go. I think the problem with music education is that too much we try and instill a music education that worked really well for us. Um, but the problem is most, most people that music education didn't work for them. Um, most people feel like failed musicians. So I think that we have to be trying to make sure that our music education is for all, for everyone. Everybody should be able to do GCC music. Everyone should feel like a musician. So a good international music educator should be aiming for everyone to be a musician and be able to make music and be able to express themselves through music, but also specifically focusing on the con context of their environment. I think context is so specific because what would work in my school here in the middle of the city with my specific students wouldn't work at the other international school down the road that has perhaps a totally different type of student. Mm. It's really different even within the city, different schools and different, different kind of ethos and values and curriculums. Did you find, I mean, you said you're still working on it, but have you found anything specific that you've had to come to understand about your specific context here that's informed the curriculum? I think that introducing a program that really um, drew students towards it rather than just focusing on, oh, those are the music kids, I'll make sure the curriculum works for those music kids. Um, so I'm not going down an easy pathway of, oh, you've got grade eight music, you should definitely choose GCC music. Obviously, I want those kids to do GCC music, but 50% of our students are non-traditional instrumentalists that choose GCC and then go on to do A-level music technology and A-level music. And, and that's where I find the most rewarding experiences is, is really educating those students that, that are getting amazing musical experiences that they wouldn't have had if they weren't in our classroom. Steve, is there anything that you wanted to talk about that we haven't covered? Any, anything else you want to share with us? What I would say is um, thanks very much for coming and visiting, Chris, and um, looking forward to meeting up soon. Hopefully we've got the Fabicia Conference coming up in Bangkok and then Musical Futures Conference in March. So hopefully people can come along to that. Um, we'll put the dates in the program notes. Absolutely, yeah. We'll put, definitely put the Musical Futures. We didn't talk about that, so we'll put that in there if anyone's interested the musical futures conference the big gig i think yeah, is the, yeah, the title yeah. do you want to say anything more about it while we're just touching on that yeah um so we've got a two-day um conference hosted here in bangkok um which is musical futures focus which is all about informal learning principles the way popular musicians learn um so come along we'll jam you'll get lots of free curriculum resources to get you started introducing informal learning into your classroom and and kind of doing a lot of the kind of curriculum stuff that I've talked about in this podcast. I guess the only other thing I'd say is um, when I moved to Bangkok, um, I was lucky that uh, a colleague had already set up um, what, what's called the Bangkok Music Teacher Network. We meet up once a month and it's a really good way of building community. So what I'd say is if you don't have a monthly meetup group in your local area, get one set up because ours is really awesome. We've got about 200 people in a Facebook group and we meet up once a month in a bar to talk geeky music education and it's really fun. That's great. Great suggestion. Thanks so much, Steve. Thanks for your time and for sharing all that stuff with us. And again, for our listeners, please do get in touch with Steve if you have any further questions or you'd like to work with him or have him work with you on anything that you've heard him talk about today. Looking forward to catching up again soon, Steve. Yeah. Cheers. Thanks, Chris. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of the Music Teachers in International Schools podcast. Listen to other episodes by visiting mtiis.com or learn more about our community on Facebook by simply searching for Music Teachers in International Schools. If you know someone who you think I should get on the podcast, I'd love to hear from you. You can find me at chriskulma.com, C-H-R-I-S-K-O-E-L-M-A.com. See you next time.